Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Wherever you are and whenever you are, welcome, good souls of the planet and beyond to Paranormal Now. I'm Alan B. Smith. Join us as we traverse the cosmic highway of paranormal portals and tantalizing turnoffs. Joining me tonight is author and Roswell UFO crash investigator Donald R. Schmidt. I'm very excited about the topic tonight, which would be Roswell UFO 1947 crash. And that is because after all these years, we really haven't dug deep into it. And I can think of no one better than Donald to do that with tonight. So if in the last 30 minutes of the show, you would like to call in and ask Donald your question, the Paranormal Radio app call in line is 855 472 5483 or 85KGRA live. And of course, during the show, please share your thoughts on Facebook.com slash Paranormal Now Radio, on Twitter at Paranormal underscore now, and on Instagram at Paranormal Now. Um, and also, there's some exciting news coming down the pipeline for UFO Monument Park. Um, I won't share too much because I need to get confirmation from Tom Reed, but there's another addition coming to the park. And for those of you who are not familiar with the UFO uh, Monument Park. Uh, this is in Sheffield, Massachusetts. We've talked about it many times on the show. Uh, Tom is a regular, and we've heard his story um, of his family, close encounter, um, quote-unquote by others, abduction, um, left to be open-ended there. Uh, Tom and I have, have spoken about that quite a bit, and he doesn't seem quite comfortable with the label of abduction necessarily. Um, but, you know, by all accounts, it seems to be what happened to him um, and his family, his brother and his mother and grandmother. So in this um, Berkshires event, uh, it wasn't just the Reed family that experienced this. Um, September 1st, 1969, um, it was a series of areas in the Berkshires. So uh, if you want to find out more about that, you can actually go to on Netflix and they did an episode on Unsolved Mysteries covering the Berkshires UFO. Um, it was a great episode. I appreciated it, uh, though it was lacking, I think, in th- quite a bit of um, backstory. Um, there was some weakness in the investigatory uh, approach. Um, and I'll bring Tom on again in the future. We'll talk about that. Um, but overall, it was, a, it was a strong episode. But I hope that they do do a follow-up um, because there's so much more to that story that that I think the general audience should learn about and should have an understanding of. Of course, we are streaming on YouTube and Facebook live every week, KGR Radio video streaming shows. And just go to KGR Radio on Facebook to watch, comment there um, during the show. In addition 
to calling in the last 30 minutes throughout the show, you could just comment on Facebook and on YouTube, and I'll do my best to watch your comments here uh, in the virtual studio and field them as we go if I can. And I know Bill Skywatcher, he keeps track of the KGRA chat room as well. Um, and again, the number to call in the last 30 minutes is 855-472-5483. Just call in to ask your question, wait for the queue, and Bill, our producer, will connect you and we'll bring you on. Um, I have to share this with you. Uh, I posted it on Instagram as well. But this is a gift from the love of my life. And it was custom made. And all of you all know how much I love coffee and UFOs. <laughs> So this will be my official Paranormal Now uh, streaming mug. So thank you, love. I really, 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 really appreciate this. Um, and I know she's listening right now. Maybe she'll pop in and, and chat in YouTube. I don't know. We'll see. Um, all right. So we're going to bring on uh, Don Schmidt in just a moment. Um, as we go through the night, I'd really like to get your feedback uh, as to, do you believe in the Roswell UFO incident or crash, as it's known? From the evidence that I have seen, read um, by the many books, like Cover Up at Roswell, right here by Donald Schmidt. Um, we also have The Truth About the UFO Crash at Roswell, Donald. And an obscure one I was very lucky to find um, in a bookstore here in New York City the Roswell Dig Library. It's not super obscure, but it's not necessarily easy to find that I was stoked when I found that um, downtown. And, you know, back and forth, even the ufological community has I'd had a little bit of infighting um, in regard to the case. I think by and large, we'll, we'll ask Don what he thinks. I think by and large, most people in this community believe that there was an extraterrestrial crash that landed, um, not technology from another country. Um, what do you think? Uh, let us know in the comments, and then we'll see if we can um, touch on those those uh, issues and concerns that you have as we go. Considering um, this is probably the biggest case, UFO case in history. Um, so strap in. Here we go. We're bringing on Don Schmidt. Don, welcome to Paranormal Now. Good evening, Alan. Thank, Thank you, you for having me. For all me. those of you who are not familiar with Don's work, he graduated from MATC with a degree in commercial art and graduated cum laude from Concordia University with a degree in liberal arts. Schmidt is the author of dozens of articles about UFOs, as well as the co-author of two best-selling books, UFO Crash at Roswell, The Best-Selling Witness, it's now up to seven, seven best-selling okay. books. You know, you told me to take the back. <laughs> but <laughs> I got this off the website, by the way. Well, I'll have to talk to our webmaster, my guy. All right. Um, <laughs> I hope he's listening, webmaster. <laughs> All right, so seven. That's fantastic, Don. Great yeah, good for you. Yeah, very, very blessed. Um, also includes the Chronological Pictorial from Moonset Entertainment Group. Uh, Don has led and organized... Uh, Three of the only archaeological dig projects. We're up to five now. Up to five. All right. <laughs> five. See, I'm getting impressed as we go. This is good. This is good. Um, digs at the actual Roswell crash debris field. Uh, they were conducted in 1989, 2002, 2006. 
2013 and 2016. Beautiful. The second effort became the central theme of their highest rated show up till that time in the 10 year history of the sci-fi channel titled the Roswell crash startling new evidence, which Mm -hmm. also resulted in the book I just showed um, the Roswell dig diaries. Uh, So Don, uh, was the crash at Roswell an alien craft? I always uh, begin by emphasizing that I was a complete skeptic. When I had worked with Dr. Heineck for eight years, that was one of the things that he always uh, could count on, that I would be the hardest one to uh, you know, convince a particular case. And, and, and there, were, there were times that when he was even leaning towards classifying something as unidentified, I would still come up with something and we'd, we'd have to, we'd have to back off. We kept it, you know, the case open, but nonetheless, it was the way I, I looked at things that mm-hmm. as long as there remain alternative explanations, we have to consider such possibilities. And so when I was director of special investigations at the center for UFO studies in Chicago, Heineck's very organization, the one case I wanted to go after was Roswell. Mm-hmm. And I thought, you know, we'd make a single weekend jaunt down to, you know, the land of enchantment and within a, you know, a, a single weekend prove that it indeed was something conventional, something prosaic, such as what the government claims to this day. It was nothing more than a, a weather balloon device, that type of thing. Mm-hmm. And so that was in February of 1989. So I'm really dating you know, myself and the investigation. But nonetheless, when we started to actually talk to the first-hand witnesses who had handled actual wreckage, it didn't matter if they were civilian back at that time. It didn't matter if they were within you know, the media. It didn't matter if they were military. Trained military who at that time at Roswell mm-hmm. were the first atomic bomb squadron. They were in charge of the atomic bomb. They were the best. They were the elite within the military at that time. They were selected because they were the best. And it didn't matter if it was as far as these highly trained military personnel mm-hmm. or a child who happened to be involved back in 47. They described the exact characteristics of this wreckage. Well, Don, what, was, what is the best? What does that mean to you? As far as what they described or... No, what, what is the best, as you described the people? What, what does that mean? Oh, that whether it, as far as the 509th bomb group, mm-hmm. charged the atomic bomb, the first atomic bomb squadron in the world. They were the best officers, best pilots, crewmen, doctors, nurses. If you swept a broom on that base back in 1947, it was because you were the best broom sweeper. In the military, you all had top security clearances because you were in charge of the bomb. I love it whenever I especially lecture on college campuses and often when uh, the the learned faculty are present. And I'll I'll ask now, where was the first atomic bomb detonated? You'd be surprised, Alan, how often even the learned teachers will comment. "Well, Well, of course, Japan, Japan. Well, how about right here? How about New Mexico? How about just two hours west of Roswell? And so one of the things that was always, you know, was also tremendously interesting 
in the initial stage of the investigation was talking to all these elderly people as to the recollections of that first atomic bomb blast. And, and given that nobody knew what it was, they were, you know, they were told it was nothing more than an explosion at a ammunition depot many miles west of town, that type of thing. And then they'll hear them describe how the very next morning, the streets, their cars, their houses were all covered in this gray ash and how they just, you know, very casually just brushed it all aside, swept mm-hmm. it away. Well, it, it was fallout from, you know, Trinity site from that first atomic detonation. Right. And my, my, my understanding, understanding is at the time there was the world the best protocols uh, to protect those people, right? Yes. Of course. And it's one of the reasons that they really weren't told as to the nature of the fallout until even the late 1980s. And then the government finally conceded that the people of New Mexico had been exposed to a very dirty, their word, dirty radiation. Exactly. Uh, the, uh, The rate of cancer through that region is extremely high. And I'm talking about children. I mean, young people in their 20s and 30s. I'm talking about where typically you see elderly people who are in blood thinner, uh, Coumadin, for example. And you'll see they just bump an arm and it pulls up with blood right below the upper epidermis because of the, the thinner, the blood thinning effect. Well, I'm seeing in New Mexico constantly men and women in their 20s and 30s with, you know, that blood pooling in their arms, suggesting that, uh, you know, something clearly still in the ground, right. still okay. in the water. And, um, you know, I've made 150 trips to New Mexico myself in these past 30 years. But it's always, it always weighs in the back of your mind, especially when you're using the water. Well, especially because you're in that region. You spend a Precisely. lot of time there, and you've gone out Precisely. on site as well. Mm-hmm. And as one of the personnel on the base told us, when it was suggested, well, that they just overreacted to uh, what had crashed north of town, that they had this knee-jerk response. And then he laughed, and he said, we had enough excitement. We had the bomb. We didn't need to you know, you know, create any you know, flying saucer scenario back at that time to attract even more attention we knew we had russian spies breathing down our our necks as it was so uh which made also perfect sense so the more we talked to these people mm-hmm. i went from where i was a, a total skeptic to where when i'm asked now don do you believe and i say no i don't believe but i'm 99 convinced Because through the course of our investigation, we have eliminated, we have gone through the entire process of everything from a Japanese balloon bomb to even a Japanese atomic bomb, B-2 rocket testing as far as Nazi technology, Russian technology, errant uh, rocket test, even a uh, broken arrow. You know, the thought that maybe we had, a, you know, a stolen atomic bomb that had been recovered. 
uh, that type of thing. And we have not been able to come up with a single conventional explanation. So we are left with precisely what the eyewitnesses to the very deathbeds have described to us. And the wonderful thing, again, talking to civilian, Mm -hmm. media, and military, it's as though they're all reading from the same script. Their descriptions, their accounts are identical. Except for where they where they contradict themselves on occasion, which which you've exposed as well. Precisely, and those typically were witnesses or uh, alleged witnesses who would come to us. They would approach us, and well, you know, you forgot to talk with me, you know, mm-hmm. or so and so really would like to talk to you, and we would get a referral from somebody, you know, in the family uh, the relation that type of thing. Mm-hmm. But more times than not, we had to find these people. We had to seek them out. And then typically their reaction was, my God, how did you find me? And why do you think I was there? Why do you think I was involved? And after we would be able to demonstrate uh, their presence, their uh, alleged participation, even then they were extremely reluctant. It, uh, in many cases, it took us years to get uh, specific people to even confide to us. And uh, so it just demonstrated the, the, the burden of mm-hmm. what they were co- uh, you know, covering up, of what they were withholding, even from their families. Are you and then with... how often we would get deathbed testimonies as well. Yeah. yeah. Are, are you familiar with Area 51 by Ann Jacobson? Yes, yes. And um, the problem with that amendment, you know, that addendum in her book, as far as, and that's all it was, and her single source, he was on ABC Nightline in promoting the book because uh, he was anonymous up until that point, and ABC determined who he was, and he would then make the comment that um, it was a theory on his part and he was only trying to help her sell books. But the thought that, as suggested, that Dr. Death, Joseph Mengele, from Nazi Germany, had been somehow captured by the Soviet Union and that Stalin then ordered him to come up with a 13-year-old mutant children right yeah who would then pilot a recovered uh, a Nazi Horton flying wing which also is not a a uh, historic fact first of all dr Mengele was not captured by the Russians he did escape to South America mm-hmm. that's an historic fact he married a uh, as far as on one of the Brazilian beaches, he married a beautiful Brazilian woman. He lived out the rest of his life, and he died there. And then as far as the Horton flying wing, all of the prototypes had been destroyed by the Germans before the fall of Berlin. We have one of the prototypes, which is on display at the Smithsonian. And it's nothing more than varnished wood over bicycle frame. That's all it is. Hardly in an aircraft that could fly all the way from Mother Russia to Mm -hmm. then crash with mutated 13-year-old children in the central part of New Mexico. 
And then as I posed the question to Annie Jacobson, which of the 13-year-olds was flying, for example? So it's a non-starter because it can be demonstrated historically that all of the key elements that she describes that would be necessary for this account fall mm -hmm. flat. They are not historically accurate. They can be demonstrated to the contrary. So as far as I'm concerned, end of that alternative explanation as well. Donovan, I'm going to jump in here with a question from Rodrigo. Um, do you want disclosure or do you like the medical mystery as it is? I recall when we originally were coming up with some of our initial data and there were certain organizations, there was, there, there was a, a certain director of one of the organizations who just would not give us the time of day. No matter what, when I was working with uh, my first partner, uh, Dr. Slash Lieutenant Colonel Kevin D. Randall, and no matter what new evi uh, evidence, no matter what new witnesses we provided, it uh, always fell on deaf ears with this individual. So I finally took him aside and I said, you know, well, what, what is the problem? And he went, Don, if, if you guys solve this, you'll put us out of business. And it's like, you mean that's all it is to you, a business? You know, you want to perpetuate, perpetuate as far as the mystery, so to speak, because uh, it continues to fill your coffers, so to speak. And it's like... I want to solve this. I want to get on with the rest of my life and get on to something much simpler like cancer research or, or something uh, of that nature. So, no, believe me, every time we have had a breakthrough, every time we have had a potential lead as to physical evidence, whether it be photographs, film, wreckage from the crash site, you know, that type of thing. It was all with the high hope, the anticipation that this may finally be the smoking gun. So uh, by, by all means, we have sought as far as uh, closure, uh, finality on Roswell for as long as we've worked on this. And the most frustrating thing right now is just about every first-hand witness is now departed, is gone. World War II generation... Um, we have little hope of coming up with any additional first-hand testimony. So now we're talking with families. Now we're working as far as on uh, potential evidentiary leads, that type of thing. Mm -hmm. But um, we, we feel that we need to wrap it up because we feel in many respects we've taken it as far as we can. All right, Don, so we're going to take our first break. When we get back, um, I'd like to know if you did indeed get the collective smoking gun. This is Alan B. Smith for Paranormal Now. Uh, we, when we return, um, I think you'll discover that there is so much more uh, to this story than you typically see on social media, tweeted about, what have you. And I assure you, that Don will be very enlightening. This is Alan B. Smith for Paranormal Now on KGR Radio. Stand by. We'll be right back.
Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry. Sorry. We're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No. Lucky Land Casino. With cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Mainstream media's most wanted. KGRARadio.com Lost in a bad way. I've gotta let you go. Welcome back to Paranormal Now. This is Alan B. Smith. We had a little bit of an audio feedback, so we're going to see if we can get Don hooked up with a, a better system here. Um, Don, how does it sound to you right now? I'm good. You're good. All right. Bill, how, how do we sound? 10, 9, 8, 1, 2, 3. All right. So I'm not hearing any feedback. I think we may have fixed this problem. All right, Don. Here Probably we are. my squeaking chair. Well, yeah, that's, that just goes with the show. Um, it actually adds a little bit of a uh, you know, creepy vibe to what we're talking about. Um, squeaky doors and all that. So taking us out of the break with Septembrio. If you're not familiar with Septembrio, go to Septembrio, spelled with a Y, dot com. And I just posted in the comments section, I was just curious, how many of you have actually gone to UFO National Park in Sheffield, Massachusetts, and taken pictures and come back from there? Just curious. And I also uh, put the link to that in the comments section as well. And below that, I'm going to place the link to the um, Don's website. And Don, uh, what year did you officially start looking into UFOs? Or maybe better yet, when were you first curious about it? Through high school. And I had uh, seen a copy of a book called Flying Saucer Serious Business by the late Frank Edwards. And uh, there was a a particular chapter entitled uh, Who's Driving? And I was just captivated by the idea that not only were we dealing with a UFO phenomenon, but that there were occupant sightings, that there were observations of actual pilots, crew, in relationship to landed UFOs. So to me, it was 
where having had a curiosity with science fiction, but never an avid reader on the topic. This was real. This was the idea that if we were indeed being visited, we're talking about the biggest story of the millennium. Now, when you approached the Roswell topic, you said you were skeptical. Um, so did you, were these two separate you know, ideas in your head that yes, extraterrestrials could be coming here, but Roswell uh, may not be the one? When the first book on Roswell came out in uh, 1980, I had really no desire to purchase the book, read the book. Uh, five years later, I had even written a paper that I just could not accept that something of that magnitude could be kept a secret, that the, the very thought that the United States government had in their possession, the physical remains of a craft and, and, and bodies. And so that just, as you're, you're correct, Alan, in that it was a distinction. It wasn't a final decision against the UFO phenomena as much as it was the thought that our government wasn't good at keeping secrets. Mm -hmm. And as a result, why aren't we hearing a lot more about this crash, so to speak? So, right. so in your work, I think one of the most enlightening aspects is that you do uncover the, the sort of game that the military, um, you know, DOD plays. Um, and there, there's a sort of, there's a skittishness about um, their tactics to deflect, detract, um, explain away. Uh, can you take us to the beginning and, and how all that started? Well, one of the misnomers that uh, people in general have is that when they, when the Army, when the Roswell Army Airfield put out that famous press release that they had actually captured a flying saucer on Tuesday, July 8th, that it was some type of overreaction on the part of the military, of the base commander, Colonel William Blanchard at that time, or his head of intelligence, Major Jesse Marcel, or even the public information officer, Lieutenant Walter Hott. And the crash happens late evening of July 2nd on a ranch in the high desert of New Mexico. The ranch foreman by the name of William Brazel, W.W. Mac Brazel, mm -hmm. he doesn't even report it to the authorities until Sunday, July 6th. It's a holiday weekend, 4th of July weekend. But whatever he brought in to display at the sheriff's office and the sheriff in turn contacting the Roswell base, mm -hmm. it was important enough that they alerted the base commander. And the base commander then doesn't just dispatch a couple of low rank uh, grunts, you know, to go investigate it, humor the rancher, you know, check it out. He sends out his two head of intelligence, Major Marcel, head of intelligence with the 509, and Captain Sheridan Cabot, the head of counterintelligence, in the event it's something foreign, which is demonstrating that they could not identify it. They did not recognize the wreckage. Now, Cabot, he was counterintelligence corps, um, Correct. But, and he wasn't stationed in the area at the time, was he? No, he was at Roswell. Oh, he was. Okay. Yeah, he denied it, 
He denied it for many months that we were visiting with him personally until we were able to document it and even contacting his ranking, his own uh, ranking officer, mm-hmm. Colonel Doyle Reeves. But was who, he, was he before the crash, was he working where, where exactly was he working out of? He was working out of Roswell. In fact, his office mm-hmm. adjoined Major Marcel at headquarters. Oh. Okay. So he was there. And in fact, uh, his two other uh, counterintelligence non-commissioned mm-hmm. officers were Lewis Ricketts and John Williams. And, and both of them confirmed Cabot being there as, as well. So... Blanchard going up the chain of command, he contacts, you know, his boss at Fort Worth, Brigadier General Roger Ramey. Ramey is on leave at the time, Fourth of July weekend. He was in Denton, Texas for the dedication of a plane, visiting with family. So it was his chief of staff, Colonel Thomas DeBose, who then contacts the Pentagon. So I'm able to document, I'm able to demonstrate the chain of progression, the fact that they now have contacted the Pentagon about what has come to their attention in Roswell. So the Bose contacts the Pentagon, and who should call him back but, but the Deputy Director of Strategic Air Command, General Clements McMullen, who orders him to have Blanchard have some of the wreckage immediately brought to Washington. Mm-hmm. Washington has wreckage in hand by late Sunday evening, July 6th. Right. When do they put out the press release? Tuesday at noon, Mountain Standard Time, July 8th, a full day and a half later. So they had time to look Plenty at this. Plenty of time to decide what mm-hmm. to do. And they took a chance. They realized that because the rancher had already talked to the press, that it already had gotten out. Mm-hmm. The wire services were already trying to put out the story. So they couldn't just deny anything. They couldn't deny the crash. So they decided, as they had learned well through World War II, First, you build something up, mm-hmm. then you tear it down. They created the straw man. They first admitted it, and then, oh, we made a big misidentification. It's nothing more than a weather balloon with a radar reflector kite. And this is a psychological technique. Precisely. And if you get the press to bite, mm-hmm. they take it and then run. And by the next day, it was accepted as gospel. It worked. What's also curious is that they only allowed from a room full of reporters one newsman by the name of James B. Johnson from the Fort Worth Star-Telegram mm-hmm. to come into General Ramey's office and take the pictures of the substituted weather balloon device. So it's, again, all staged. It's all contrived. Major Marcel, who was ordered to pose with the pictures, He's then ordered to stay overnight, not go back to Roswell. He's ordered not to say a word to the waiting reporters, things like that. The rancher, 
Mac Brazel, he's been abducted by the military and he's kept at the base in Roswell for five full days. And the base commander, Colonel William Blanchard, he announces he's going on leave. So the, the first eyewitness, he is in this uh, housing, this house, right? For five days. What are they doing to him? They kept him what they called the guest house. The mm-hmm. building is near where the front gate originally was located, but it was all fenced off. So they essentially had him, as he would tell his neighbors afterwards, he felt like he was in jail. And he described how they kept him up all hours. They asked him the same questions over and over again. And what to him was the most humiliating is that they subjected him to a full army physical, including a full body cavity search. Now, I can't emphasize enough for for your audience. Yeah. This is a civilian. They have absolutely no authority over civilians unless martial law is declared. And they certainly don't have authority to arrest, to abduct, to hold a civilian and then not provide him due process as well. He wasn't even allowed to call his own wife. He wasn't allowed to call his boss. He's been removed from his ranch where he was the foreman. And... No explanation as to where he was. So, again, over a weather balloon device. And that's where your audience needs to start asking themselves, does this all make sense over something so menial, something so conventional that they would resort to such extreme measures? Mm -hmm. That's a good question. And, in fact, the county sheriff is the the one who actually has authority over the military if it's – Exactly. The, mm-hmm. the county sheriff at that time, George Wilcox, he could have gone on to the base and with with proper as far as authority could have arrested the base commander right. and everyone on that base if necessary. And he could so he could have prevented Mac Brazel um, or taken Mac Brazel out of their custody. Correct. He could have if he okay. would have been aware of it. And, and the military actually used the sheriff. As a proxy, they had him go around to other civilians who were involved and, mm-hmm. and warned them and even threatened them with lethal force if they continued talking about this. And then afterwards, they repaid him for essentially serving as you know their henchmen, so to speak, in dealing with the civilians. They... Return to the courthouse. Well, Don, do you have do you have evidence of him getting paid, or is that um, just testimonial? Uh, no evidence of him being paid at all. Mm-hmm. What it was, as described by his two daughters, who days after the balloon explanation, they heard a commotion from upstairs in the courthouse, their mm-hmm. living quarters. The stairway in the hallway overlooked the front lobby, which there adjoined their father's office. One of the boxes of debris that Brazel had brought into town had been kept by their father, the sheriff. He had it hidden in his closet in his own office. So they hear the the vehicles, the roar of, of, of jeeps, vehicles, surrounding the courthouse. 
And all at once they hear, you know, men coming in through all the doors, through the cafeteria, through the back of the courthouse, through the front uh, lobby. And then they witness their father coming out to see what the commotion was. And they observe. Now, mind you, they're two teenage daughters. And they watch their father, the sheriff, having his arm twisted behind his back and then his face pushed up against the wall. And with guns drawn, the MPs ordering to know where the rest of the stuff was being hidden. Mm -hmm. So again, such extreme measures where even they essentially physically accosted the county sheriff in retrieving every last piece of physical evidence. And then the physical threats extended on to more and more of the civilians for months and even years after the incident. Do you know how many people may have had a piece of the uh, the craft? We, as far as eyewitnesses, Mm -hmm. we have, we've had over two dozen people who described at one time having physical evidence in their possession, over two dozen. And in every case, it was later retrieved by the military. Uh, Best example was Brazel's own son, Bill Jr., who, uh, especially after heavy rains, would ride out over the debris field region long after the military cleanup. And pieces had washed to the surface. And so he found enough pieces, enough uh, uh, you know, samples, enough artifact, he filled up a cigar box. And even his wife, Shirley, would describe how one particular piece he kept in his leather chaps, that he would work the ranch through the day and then sit down to dinner, mm-hmm. and she would serve, she would set the table, and she'd watch night after night how he would take that piece out, this paper-thin metal-like material about the size of a handkerchief. And she would watch time and time again how no matter how he would try to cut on it with a steak knife or he would hold his lighter up to it, he would crumble, he would crease, he would crunch it into a ball. And each and every time he would place it down and they would watch as it would flow across the table like water, just smooth right out without any sign of any any damage. So it was some time later that Brazel was at the nearest pub. It was a Waves Bar in Corona, about uh, an hour from the ranch. And somebody was playing pool and somebody brought it up. You know, Bill, you know, that whole, you know, incident your dad was involved with. Did you ever find anything yourself? To which Bill responded, well, I, I found a few scraps, as he put it. And who should be at his door the very next morning? But a captain who we verified, we confirmed, by the name of Emerson Armstrong and three other non-commissioned officers. And basically it was, we know, Mr. Brazo, we know what you have and you will give it to us. So what does that mean down there? He was being spied on? Yes. And the point being, this was two years after the incident. 
They were still watching. Still watching. The principal witnesses. So why did all these principal witnesses, um, if they had the occasional conversation between each other, uh, why didn't any of them go to the press and say this was real? And and and, and, you're, and, and Alan, you're correct. Even in that question, that some of them did. Whether it was Frank Joyce that they went to a KGFL, there was Jed Roberts, there was Walt Whitmore, uh, a senior, there was Johnny McBoyle, he was another reporter. You had the Roswell Daily Record, you had the Roswell Dispatch, those were the two newspapers. Witnesses did attempt contacting the media, but the media was also being squelched. Judd Roberts, for example, at KGFL, described that within a day of the press release going out, they received a phone call from the FCC in Washington. There was an FCC representative by the name of T.J. Slowey introduced himself, and he warned them that if they put out one more bulletin about the story, they would lose their license within 24 hours. So much for freedom of the press. And then there was a follow-up call by then Secretary Dennis Chavez, who said, you better do as you're being told because it's out of my hands. They're, they're going to they're gonna put you out of business. And then Frank Joyce, who was a reporter at KGFL, he receives a phone call from a colonel at the Pentagon who also warned him that they would all be arrested if they didn't do as they were told. So the FCC is working in tandem with some department of the U.S. US government in Washington, correct? In Washington, okay. So that's that's in that short period of time after. But what about years later? Why why didn't you know five, ten, fifteen years later somebody say, you know what, you know the right thing to do would be to share what actually happened? And that's keeping in mind that with the military, it it simply involves, especially with the officers. We have descriptions of where they were taken into briefing rooms, the briefing rooms, and in groups of, you know, 10 to 12, they were warned never to talk about this again. Ramey, for example, Colonel Blanchard's boss, told his own chief of staff, Colonel DeBose, mm-hmm. I don't want to hear you ever bring this up again. The personnel at Roswell were told, you'll be reading about this from Leavenworth Prison if you ever talk about this again. And then with the civilians, they were threatened with physical violence. Parents were told, you will never see your children again or we'll kill kill your children. Children were were told, you'll never see your parents again. So do you have testimony testimony from those children recalling that experience of being intimidated? Oh, yes. Yes. Frankie Rowe, for example, she was 14 years old at that time. Mm-hmm. Her father was a crew chief with the Roswell Fire Department. And Frankie, who had just had her tonsils out a few days earlier, she had a follow-up a, a dental appointment. And she just stopped at the firehouse, which at the time adjoined the courthouse. And they were fully aware of what had been reported just outside of town. 
that there was all this talk about this crashed flying saucer. And who should come into the firehouse but a state police officer by the name of Robert Scroggins, who was given a piece by Matt Brazel from the very debris field. Nobody's able to identify this. And Scroggins, the state police officer, said, well, I'm on my way home, and I'll stop in Roswell, and I'll talk to some of the authorities there, and maybe they don't recognize it. So there was this handkerchief-sized piece of the memory material, and Frankie got to inspect it. She got to hold it in your hands, and she described that it flowed like quicksilver, as she described it. Again, it's, it, it flowed like water between her fingers when she was holding it. It just, it just smoothed right out no matter what you did with it. That night, there's a knock at the door. Her father was still at the firehouse. Her mother and her younger sister were home. And an officer who we also identified as Lieutenant Arthur Philbin arrived at the Dwyer. That was, that was her maiden name, arrived at the house, and they demanded she was with a number of MPs. They demanded to know where Frankie was. And the mother pleaded ignorance while Frankie and her young sister, Dottie, were hiding in the bedroom. And they listened to them threaten her mother, their mother, over and over again. And then all of a sudden, the bedroom door swings open. And there's this officer with this heavy Brooklyn accent. And, she, and that's who <laughs> Philbin was. He was from New York. Seems, New York, former New like, York State Police. Seems like the right person to recruit. You know? And he was a big, hulking man, six mm-hmm. foot four, 250 pounds, big, booming voice. We, we talked to his very son, and he confirmed, yeah, that's, that's what my dad would have done. And how he with the baton over and over again in his hand. And, and, and Frankie, if you ever say another word about this, we will take you out into the desert and you will never see your family again. Believe me, especially coming off of World War II, the, the zeitgeist of the time, it, it, it left an impact. These people weren't you know, willing to risk the wrath of the government, especially given what had just happened in New Mexico just two years before with the atomic bomb. Well, Don, in regard to a piece of the craft, uh, one question I have for you is one of the descriptions I hear is that it's like aluminum foil, mm-hmm. but it's unbelievably hard, mm-hmm. um, which you know seems impossible. And then the other description, like you said, was this like aluminum-ish like material that you could squeeze or maybe sheet metal material you could squeeze and then it would retract. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. So there are four types of material. Four types of it. What are the other two? Okay. The one was as you, the first you described, that was paper thin, mm-hmm. practically weightless in your hands. Uh, it, you couldn't cut it. You couldn't burn it. Uh, they describe how they even took a 16 pound sledgehammer and they would pound on about a four foot section. Right. And the hammer would just bounce right off, wouldn't even scratch or mar this material. And there were uh, I-beam sections of the same material, 
penciled thin that high that had uh, hieroglyphic-like symbology that ran the lengths of, of these strips, these pieces. And there were a silken strands of material like microfilament, fishing line. But they described how you'd hold a light source up to one end, and the light would emit out the opposing end. Well, they're describing fiber optics. In 1947, yet fiber optics weren't developed until around 1970. And then the material that I've been describing, which we still refer to as our Holy Grail. The same nearly indestructible paper-thin material. But this you could crease, crunch, wad up into a ball. And it would always unravel and smooth right out right before your eyes. Right. So four distinct types of wreckage. Now, in the news... We've read recently about this apparent recovered material from, I think, the Roswell crash. Um, and now, do you do you believe that 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 is? Um, my my understanding, the backstory, is somehow it was given to Art Bell, then to Linda Moulton Howe, um, and then to 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 Bigelow. Um, right, Robert Bigelow, who I know personally and we've worked with in the past, so. Okay, so so that is that provenance correct? It is, okay. but it, but it, but it's for that very reason that it's very problematic. As I was describing minutes ago, in their attempts to recover every last piece of physical evidence, mm -hmm. and then they have people just brandishing about, you know, an alleged piece of you know a genuine flying saucer, acting like it's just some type of souvenir that you would pick up at a candy arcade, you know, at a, at a circus. It, you know, it, it's inconsistent. It doesn't make sense because, and it, it, it does not uh, resemble what the actual Raza witnesses have described to us from right, day right. one. Yeah. Now, I, I, I don't discount the fact that it may indeed be something um, now, I won't, I won't go so far as to say that it appears to be something manufactured elsewhere. No. Um, it, 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 there's a curiosity about it. There are certain alloys and elements about it that, uh, that make it a little strange. But again, if it was the genuine article, I'm sorry, we wouldn't be seeing it right now. Okay. And they'd be able to prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that it was the real thing. All right. Well, you know, when we get back to the other side of this second break, we'll ask Don, um, is there an article artifact somewhere um, and where is it? Uh, and I'd like to ask Don about his, you know, uh, excursions out into the desert, into the crash field itself. Um, I know, Don, that you had written in your book and you sort of lamented that uh, Jesse Marcel was never asked to, to, to be, you know, take people out. I to know. the crash site. And it is hard to believe. It is hard to believe. Um, so we'll cover that and more when we get back on the other side. This is Alan B. Smith for Power Normal Now on KGRA Radio. We'll be right back. Come 
With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Mainstream media's most wanted. KGRARadio.com Not try to capture how I feel And tell you the whole truth But there's so much to be said So I just leave your small clues But now I'm burying my soul And my soul loves you Welcome back to Paranormal Now. This is Ellen B. Smith. My guest tonight is Don Schmidt, and taking us out of the break was music by Septembrio. Um, and some interesting news. Septembrio is participating in a, a video project that my wife and I are working on. And uh, well, I'll, just, I'll just say it now. It's a documentary, but I won't give out too much information. But in time, um, I'll give you more as we go, and we continue with filming and uh, and really weave that story together. It's going to be very, very, very interesting for all lovers of the paranormal. Uh, coming up in the coming weeks, we have Melanie Kirchdorfer, and she is an experiencer during the Berkshires event. She was also uh, featured on the Unsolved Mysteries episode. And then Micah Hanks from the Grelian Report is joining us September 6th. Um, so, so far, it's going to be shaping up to be a good fall season. And I'm very proud and happy to say that my father uh, will be joining us on uh, October 31st, Halloween, um, as the historian that he is, to discuss the history of Halloween. So I look forward to that. It'll be the first time he joins us on the show. So, uh, Don, w- is there any evidence out there, anything physical that we can, we can look to? I had described the rancher's son, Bill Jr., recovering artifacts months after the crash. And he wasn't the only one. There were other ranchers, other children who, you know, even some of the local pack wolves, so to speak, that uh, would find something, scurry it away. And so it just, it built more and more expectation on our part that if they could, there still has to be other material out there. So by the fall of 89, we were out there with archaeologists. We had determined the location, not only with the Brazel family, but a former hired hand, uh, additional ranchers in the region who all took, they all took us to the exact same location, even to where witnesses describe the gouge, a furrow about 10 foot wide, several hundred feet long, where a large piece of wreckage from uh, the mid-air explosion of the crash uh, had impacted and skipped across the ground. So in 89, 
We used the survey meter, a theatolite. We laid out a systematic grid. We mapped out the site. We marked out areas, areas of potential entrapment, mm -hmm. all with the plan to come back with a full university project. So it took us from 89 to 2002 to put together sufficient funding to get the sponsorship to come in. And the most exciting thing about the 2002 dig was that we confirmed the gouge that when we had an archeological backhole operator with a scoop shovel digging perpendicular to the site that we flagged as the location of the gouge based on all the eyewitness testimony. Mm -hmm. And the shovel was jumping. It was, it was, it was as though it was hitting a, a loose pocket of sediment. It wasn't consistent with the surrounding uh, ground and, and stone. And so when it was pulled away and they worked with engineers from the ground as well. So they're monitoring and they're photographing the, the, the procedure. Mm -hmm. And there it was right below the surface, as the eyewitnesses described, a symmetrical V. Exactly where they said the gouge was. Okay. In other words, something had impacted skipped across the ground mm -hmm. it's filled over through the wind and rain erosion of the past at that time 60 you know some years but there it was there it was so, so the, it the, wasn't it wasn't is a an impression. hardware but nonetheless it was further confirmation that something had crashed there something had impacted it, it was an impression a gouge right a gouge okay hundreds of feet long and so the so essentially it was kind of was it filled in with like a different yes uh, I mentioned the sediment as far just, as the rain and erosion so it levels so off it was and, obvious right okay right. gotcha um, are are you familiar with the Aztec UFO case yes nineteen forty eight yeah are you um, a believer again there is that word <laughs> let's just say I'm open minded. Okay. Um, all right. Unlike Roswell, which has hundreds mm -hmm. of first ten witnesses, Aztec has none. It's all second hand, second, third hand. And I think I would have given up on Roswell many years ago if not for the fact we had all these first hand witnesses. And on camera. Audio. And on camera and signing affidavits and giving video depositions and providing deathbed testimonies. And the point being, Roswell was a year before Aztec. So if we could do it, why couldn't they do it with Aztec being a year later? Well, I mean, to be fair, I think that uh, ufologists in the 80s didn't really take it seriously, correct? Well, you talk about Roswell or Aztec? A Aztec. Uh, no, they didn't. No, they didn't. But I mean, had they had they pursued that more vigorously, do you think they may have, um, you know, found uh, firsthand witnesses? You, you raise a good point, Alan. If they would have started when we did, mm -hmm. if indeed there were firsthand, they would have only been in their seventies, sixties, seventies, and eighties at that time, mm -hmm. and uh, maybe. And, and, and you're absolutely correct. We often think if we would have started just five years sooner. We would have had some primary, you know, principal first-hand witnesses, mm -hmm. uh, Major Marcel. And as you said just before the top of the hour break, 
the fact that he had died three years before we started and they never took him out to the debris field. They never took him to the, the, the scene of the crime, so to speak. Well, have you, did you ever talk to Stanton about that? Oh, yes, yes. Well, what, what did he one, say? That's the one thing I can't emphasize enough. Stanton, as much as we got along and we worked together, and even leading up to the time he died, we were you know, still making plans and talking about things that we still needed to do regarding mm-hmm. the investigation. But, but, but Stan Friedman, God bless him, he was not an investigator. He was not a researcher. He was an archivist. He loved wading through documents. He was convinced that he would get his smoking gun that would jump out at him at the National Archives in Washington or one of the presidential you know, libraries, that type of thing. So when it came to field work, it was one of the reasons back in the fall of 88 that in many respects, he turned it over to us. When he told me, when I asked him point blank, Stan, do you feel you've tracked down and interviewed all the all the potential witnesses? And he was like, my Don, absolutely not. Yeah. I'm sure there's still hundreds of people out there. Well, that's all I needed to hear. Even in my skepticism, we were the ones who were going to then launch a full-scale investigation with the eyewitnesses at the crash site. At the former base, we were going to take witnesses back to the actual locations where they had their direct involvement. And Stan, they just didn't think, they didn't believe in that. And um, God bless him, as I said, but uh, his comment to me was, the first time I asked him was, Don, if you've seen one part of New Mexico, you've seen it all. Well, well, I want to see it through the eyes of the witness. I want them to walk me through what they mm-hmm. lived, you know, experienced back in 1947. And it just didn't you know, cross well, their minds. I mean, you know, had had Marcel lived a little bit longer, it, it may have happened, right? Because other researchers were, were we coming to the story. For yeah, sure. And, and it was, yeah. it was an, I think he had emphysema or, or something. Yes. Yeah. So it was one, not, that's actually one of the reasons he went public in 78. He was already diagnosed with terminal emphysema. Right. So at the site, so that is, in a sense, physical evidence, right? There's mm-hmm. this this gouge. Um, and and how, how wide was the gouge again? Ten foot. Ten foot. That's big. Yes. Yes. And that in itself, and balloons, again, of any sort do not create gouges in high desert field stone and limestone, you know, very little topsoil. So this was, again, something uh, that uh, actually came down with a considerable force and was able to sustain, you know, and remain in one piece as it skipped across the ground for hundreds of feet. It would have torn, it would have shredded a balloon to bits if that would have been the case. Exactly, and I I find it really odd that years later, as they, um, you know, tweak their story, their cover story, why wouldn't they, since they changed things around anyway? And their, yes. their their excuse was, "Hey, we couldn't tell you about this um, this weather balloon because it was actually measuring um, nuclear explosions in the atmosphere to see if the, the Russians were 
um, exploding, you know, nuclear weapons. And I should add, it failed miserably. It failed Project <laughs> Mogul. You're talking. It didn't work, about. Mogul. It didn't right. work. No. But but and even then, so so why wouldn't they just say, you know what, we had to cover that up. Um, that, that's one thing, but, but the reason there was so much debris is, oh, maybe we were testing something else. I mean, or, or, or did they have nothing else, a plane crash, anything that they could have used? Why, why stick to a neoprene, uh, balloon where even the most, you know, skeptical person would have to say, how does that, how does that jive? In our own investigation of, um, you know, exploring the possibility of some type of testing that was going on, mm-hmm. and especially in New Mexico. Again, the history, you're talking about all the testing of the captured German V-2 rockets at White Sands Proving Grounds in Alamogordo, New Mexico. Mm-hmm. You had ongoing atomic research at Los Alamos. You had the 509 bomb group station at Roswell. So it was the hotbed of military activity, of testing at that time. Mm-hmm. But... Also, in that situation, you had more Russian spies in New Mexico for that very reason. So they would conduct their tests elsewhere. Okay. They weren't, they weren't uh, drawing more attention, as I said at the beginning of the show, to New Mexico when it already was the focal point of all our enemy spies at that time. Now, it's, it's a 4th of July weekend. Most personnel are on leave. They're with their families away from the base. And if you've ever, if you've ever seen pictures of the, the debris field site, it's high desert. It's out in the central a, a part of New Mexico, Lincoln County. It's totally unobscured by anything. No trees, no caverns. No sinkholes, no mountains. It's wide open range, high desert. Okay. The fact that when Brazil, the rancher, first reported it, there had been nothing else reported missing. That was the reason the military reacted the way they did. It wasn't like, there it is. Now we can pounce on it. Now we can get there before anyone else. The point being, also, if the crash took place the late evening of July 2nd, the rancher doesn't report it until Sunday, July 6th. It's been out there for over three full days mm-hmm. out in the high desert, covering an area of almost three quarters of a mile long. Nobody was looking for anything because if they were, they would have found it even before the rancher. So if they lost a piece of important top secret hardware, they would have sent scouts out or somebody to try to find this thing. Is that what you're saying? Absolutely. And again, in the high desert, unobscured by anything. Mm -hmm. And as we ourselves have demonstrated numerous times in flying over the area in small planes, in helicopters, once you are airborne, you can see for 50 miles. Okay. So the point again being nothing, they weren't looking for anything. Nothing had been reported missing. And if it wasn't ours, then whose was it? Right. And that's where the alternative stories come in to say it was a Russian craft or what have you to try to fill that, that gap. 
right, um, right. But like you said, the Horton wing, I mean, it, it's, it was like balsa wood and, and, and whatever material, right? Something like precisely. Earlier. And yeah. no matter what the alternative, even if we're talking about foreign, mm-hmm. it still never considers the wreckage as described by the eyewitnesses. Exactly. Right. They always discount that. They always ignore that aspect, which is to us the most important aspect of it. The fact that the material was so advanced mm-hmm. that nobody could identify it. Okay, we're going to open up the phone lines in about 15 minutes. So if you want to call in and ask Don your question, call 855-472-5483. That's 85-KGRA-LIVE for the Paranormal Radio app phone line. Uh, and, and let Don uh, know what you think or you know ask your questions away. Um, there's no better person, I think, to, to touch on this subject than, than Don. Um, so, so Don... You know, who else in the field do you do you have respect for who has researched the, the Roswell incident that, that you communicate with regularly and, and, and so forth? Well, my, 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 my writing partner, my investigative partner is, is, is Thomas J. Carey in the Philadelphia area. Mm-hmm. And he's uh, just his uh, doctorate dissertation uh, away from his Ph.D. in anthropology. And uh, he certainly is, you know, my trusted partner and a wonderful writer and uh, very passionate as to his involvement with all this. Uh, Dr. David Rudiak, who has spent uh, uh, years working on the Ramey memo, which is the telex that General Ramey is holding in four of the photographs and one in particular with the text of uh, one paragraph facing the camera. Mm-hmm. And Rudiak uh, convinced that it actually reads the victims of the wreck and makes reference to the disc recovered in two lines. So clearly not talking about a weather, a, a, a balloon device of any sort, talking about, you know, actual occupants, crew of, you know, this disc, that type of thing. And Dr. When Donald you, when you say When you say convinced, um, is there ambiguity there? Yes, because the problem, for example, with the Ramey memo, it, it's the same thing as uh, many of the scientists, many of the archaeologists, many of the scientists involved, for example, even at NASA working on the Shroud of Turin, as far as the alleged burial cloth uh, re- recovered that suggests, you know, it's the actual burial cloth cloth of Jesus Christ. And Studio Macbeth in New York, Ray Downing, when the History Channel had hired them to mm-hmm. come up and, and, and actually create 3D imagery of the man on the shroud. And they had the same problem with the shroud as we have with the memo. And that once we learned that the actual negatives of that press conference still exist. And we would do, you know, electronic scans, increasing the uh, PSI as far as even beyond the negative itself. But the problem we always had, just as they have with the shroud, that as you enhance the image, as we enhance enhance the, the letters, we also enhance the noise factor. In the case of the shroud, the, the, the weave 
the fabric of the uh, uh, the fabric, and in our case, the grain of the photograph. Mm-hmm. And so what they did with the shroud, they came up with the new programs, the new technology that shave away the fabric one layer at a time until you have nothing left but the figure of the man on the shroud. We're now attempting to do the same thing as far as with the Ramey memo. In other words, let's show this. We're still working on that. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. In fact, there's going to be some new testing coming out this fall. So because it, 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 again, is one of those potential smoking guns that as the technology continues to improve, we have to keep revisiting. We have to continue going back to it because it, uh, especially if that line, victims of the wreck, is indeed there. And that's, that, that is there. You believe that? I'm, I, I believe it is there. Because okay. one of my colleagues suggested, well, you know, the Ramey memo is like chasing, uh, you know, uh, faces in the clouds. Mm-hmm. And, and to me, that's, you know, that's rather foolhardy in, in the sense that, well, but you're talking about a verbiage. You're talking about words on a, in a telex. First of all, you're, you're talking about only 26 possible letters. And then it has to also be, as far as correct grammar, it has to be as far as constructive, you know, full sentences. So in other words, it has to all come together. It has to make sense. And the way Dr. Rudiak and Dr. Donald Burleson, who has also worked on the Ramey memo, uh, Ron Regeer, who was a former NASA engineer, he also spent a lot of time working on it. Their consensus or their uh, evaluation is that it indeed does read victims of the wreck. And so I, I accept as far as their analysis, their conclusions with the hope that uh, we'll get even more in-depth corroboration down the road. So it was not a weather balloon. Of any sort, no. Of any sort, no. okay. And keeping in mind that on July 8th of 1947, mm-hmm. they put out, I always I always come back to, you know, who started the very concept, the very notion that it, this was the recovery of a flying saucer? But the government slash the Army military at that time. They're the ones who made that claim back in 1947. We didn't. Five right, hours the, later, yeah. they explained it all away as just being a, a Rowan weather a radar target device. And in September of 1994, they expanded on that. They came out with a new theory that, uh, well, it's the same type of balloon, but it was part of a Russian spy device called Project Mogul. But what nobody ever comes back to is the fact that it's the same balloon. It's the same balloon material. It's still neoprene rubber balloons with radar reflector kites, mm-hmm. uh, wooden sticks, reflective foil, string, and masking tape. Off-the-shelf material a five-year-old child would recognize. Yeah. And here we are in 2000, uh, 2020, and we're still asked to believe that the people who were in charge of the atomic bomb couldn't recognize a balloon. Uh, we have a question from Rodrigo, and that's why not use AI to reconstruct the image? Excellent, Rodrigo. Yes, I could not agree more. In fact, a professional photographer 
by the name of uh, Jack Rodden. He's passed away now. When we were working with him on the scans, that was the one thing that we discussed at some length. Why don't we come up with, why don't we design an actual program, an AI program that will read the memo? In other words, it's not open to interpretation. Correct. Allow as far as, again, there's only 26 letters. There's only certain words that will, you know, grammatically, grammatically as far as actually come together, constructing full sentences and then be consistent, you know, from sentence to sentence as far as part of a telex. So wonderful question, because, yes, that's the direction we're going. In other words, let's allow AI put, you know, as far as uh, the, the, the final as far as a stamp as to what the memo says. Okay, so now we have the gouge in the desert. What what else did you find there that was compelling? Within the last five to six years, there have been metal fragments that have been recovered, uh, principally by our geologist who works with us, Professor Frank Kimbler, who's head of the geology department at the Military Institute of Technology mm-hmm. in Roswell and using mainly metal detection, because we've gone in with subterranean radar, electromagnetic uh, spectrum analysis equipment, even infrared. We've even done uh, soil testing. Uh, The potassium level, for example, uh, juxtaposed to the surrounding control soil is much lower within the debris field, suggesting that it has been chemically altered. And we believe that in an attempt to decontaminate the site back at that time, they may have bleached down the area. That would also explain why the ranchers described to us that for the next five years, the livestock would not graze on the site, that there was something wrong with it. And not that they were afraid of it, we believe that they bleached it down. And it's still, on the infrared, it shows up as a scorch. It shows as though the site has been burned. But getting back to these these fragments, discovered mainly by uh, Professor Kibler, under as far as radioisotope testing, Mm -hmm. they are predominantly aluminum. But the one element that should not be there, that is not part of any registered alloy, at least that we are aware of here on planet Earth, is molybdenum. Molybdenum is a hardening agent strictly for steel. It makes it stronger. Well, with aluminum, it makes it more brittle. Hmm. So it shouldn't be there. And yet there it's up to 3% in some of these fragments. Now, it does again, it doesn't prove by any shadow of a doubt that we're dealing with something off the planet. But it's, it's, it's strange that some of these artifacts would be out there. Well, and they're long, at that very location. How long has molybdenum been in use? Uh, dating back to post-World War II. Post-World War II? Yes, yes. So, so would, it have, not, would it have been around then? Yes. Okay. 
Now, couldn't, could that have been used in a different project at the time? That's one of the things that we have looked into. And again, because we cannot document any other testing, and we certainly can't document to this day any testing involving aluminum with molybdenum. It just is not a registered alloy. Okay. So right there, until that can be demonstrated, it just falls into that, uh, as far as that very strange basket of where, where does this combination come from? And how come there's nothing else? There should be many other examples that we should be able to demonstrate of aluminum and molybdenum, and yet we can't. It just is not unknown as far as combination. Don, I'm going to throw you a curveball. Um, this is from Rockstar. Does Don think the shroud is authentic? Shroud of turn. That's fine. That's fine. And I, I had many good discussions with Ray Downing at Studio Macbeth who did the 3D imagery on the shroud. Mm -hmm. And he was a total skeptic. And to listen to him describe how their work on it convinced him. And then we were at a board meeting in Chicago when NASA was actually doing the carbon dating on the shroud. And they were all excited and they were talking back and forth during breaks with our board meeting with one of the scientists on our board because they thought they were going to authenticate the shroud. They thought that they were going to date it. Uh, you know, around 2,000 years old. And then when they came up to, you know, you know, the Middle Ages, that this was a 5th century, you know, uh, you know, painting or forgery of some sort, I'll never forget some of the disappointment in the room. But I'm, I'm very pleased that, especially some of the, the high-ranking contacts I have within the church, mm -hmm. because... We've also overlapped as far as Roswell because I would love to get into the Vatican archives. That oh, at who, that oh, time, who wouldn't done? Oh my God! Of course, that would be amazing. And, amazing, <laughs> and, and and so I've had many in-depth discussions regarding the shroud with high with with scientists, Jesuit scientists within the church. So it's 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 convinced me more and more through the years that we're dealing with the genuine article regarding the shroud. So yes, I accept that. Regarding the Vatican and Roswell, mm -hmm. one of the things that I'm especially keen on that I, I have assurances that at some point I hopefully will have access is that the president at the time was Harry S. Truman. I can only imagine that one of the very first people that he would have contacted the word, the moment he gets that phone call from New Mexico okay. telling him what has transpired. And then he would get on the phone with Pope Pius XIII and ask your holiness, what can you tell me? What does the church know about this? So I would just like to verify that phone call. That would be enough. That right? would be enough. That would be enough. 
All right, we're going to open up the phone lines. So now is your time to call in and ask Don your question. The number is 855-472-5483 for the Paranormal Radio app hotline. Again, that's 85-KGRA-LIVE. And we're going to bring on our first uh, caller here. We have Ron from Minnesota. How are you, Ron? Hey, and hello to Don. Thank you for having such a great guest. Thanks, you, you always have a great guest, Ellen. Not worried about that. Thanks, Ron. Do you have a question for Don? Think about your skepticism. How was working with Jalen and has that improved your skepticism or made it worse? Uh, oh, I, I could not be more fortunate than having worked with Heineck, not only as my teacher, mentor, my scientific uh, director, but, but truly as a friend because he, he loved field work. He loved being on the battlefield, so to speak. He loved being in the trenches. He loved eye-to-eye contact in speaking, in dealing with eyewitnesses. When we were talking earlier about taking Roswell witnesses out to the crash site, out to the debris field, that type of thing. And to me, there's nothing greater than recreating the experience, reliving it through their eyes, that type of thing. And, and, and Heineck, you know, he was in his element when he could do that, whether it was going to Papua New Guinea or Hestal in Norway, that type of thing. He loved personal contact with eyewitnesses because as a scientist that would enable him as it has enabled us to make the best possible judgment on the eyewitness information, on their testimony, on their behavior, on their eye contact, on their body as far as mannerism, that type of thing. So you become the authority. It isn't just a skeptic who was reading through a report and then, you know, drawing, you know, a conclusion from just reading words. We're with the actual witnesses and we have a movie running in our heads. You know, we're actually reliving it as they describe it, describe it to us. And that's where that was probably the best thing that Heineck, you know, taught us. You know, always go to the actual location because then you become the authority next to the actual eyewitness because you have placed yourself in their shoes. You have relived it through their eyes. And um, I, I will never, you know, think otherwise. And for all these years thereafter, I still insist on it with uh, any of the investigators who also work with us. I like that. So you are more of a believer than a skeptic. Now I would say I'm uh, I'm convinced. I'm not a believer. I'm 99% convinced. Yeah, it sounds like Don doesn't like the word believer. I don't, because to me that's like a dogma of faith. Yeah. All right. That was a great question, Ron. Yeah, very good, Ron. Great guess, and we'll, we'll see you next time, hopefully, and thank you both for taking the call. Have a good night. All right. Thanks, Ron. Have a good night. Thanks, Ron. Um, so yeah, where, where did you, um, where, where do you think you picked up your most of your skills? Was it Heineck? Um, you know, what makes you the best investigator, um, that you can be? 
he would always tell us, Heinrich would always mention to us, never lose that little boy wonderment. And I see absolutely no chance of that waning or becoming any less. I think one of the things I, I loved about Heineck was his passion. Mm -hmm. That even to the point that he was as sick as he was, that he still wanted the final solution. You know, even when they removed the tumor from his brain and he was in the recovery room at the Moffitt Clinic in San Francisco. And even then he was tossing and turning. And why can't they tell me? Why can't they tell me even now? In other words, it was still foremost in his mind. He had, you know, you know he was dying. And, you know, that's all he was concerned about was I still need to know before I, well, I still have, have time. And I think it's one of the reasons that in, in many respects, when we had our first archaeological dig back in 89, and it was just three years after Heineck had passed away, and his wife Mimi was with us. She was part of the project, part of the dig. And she had been with us at the Center for UFO Studies, and in many ways, she ran the office. We would be out in the field working, and uh, you know she kept as far as the coffee hot back in Chicago, that type of thing. <laughs> and as often as we were out at the site for four days working, and if she said it once, she said it a dozen times when she commented, Alan, Dr. Heineck, Alan would be so proud of you boys. And again, to me, you know, that's that's all I needed to hear. That, that's, that if he if he were if he would have still been alive, he would have been there with us, even at that age. And uh, I'm going to as long as I take a breath, you know, if it's the last thing I finally you know draw a a solution to in my lifetime, it's going to be Roswell. I think that's a that's quite moving, actually, and. You you have not given up. Um, what other physical evidence um, or any 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 really um, solid, convincing evidence is there? Well, a, a deathbed testimony is admissible in a court of law here mm -hmm. in the United States. It's considered, it's accepted as physical evidence. And we have over two dozen deathbeds where even in our presence or to their spouses, their children, to even uh, doctors where they confided within days, within hours of their passing as to what happened. Uh, Sergeant uh, Holbert Rowlett, for example, he was just about uh, to be wheeled into the operating room for open heart surgery and he waved his daughter over to his, uh, his gurney. And um, she leaned down and he very weakly, very weakly, very quietly said, you know how they talk about a flying saucer crash back in Roswell in 1947. Well, I was there. I've never told you this before. But we were part of, you know, the recovery operation. Mm -hmm. I saw the craft. 
I saw the bodies. They weren't from here. And one was alive. Now, it isn't just Homer Rowlett who provided that deathbed testimony. The two dozen that we have all, invariably all describe the same thing. Well, it tells us that, that you know, the clock is ticking for us. Um, and, you know, let's make the best of the time that we have here. And if you're interested in these fields, it it just makes sense to not give up. Um, and I, I appreciate that. And for the younger people out there, um, and as I, I think I alluded to earlier, Don, you know, th- there's often a sentiment that... Roswell's been done. Um, it's old. There's nothing new there. Um, look, look elsewhere. What do you say to to those people? We uh, the, the the new book that is just out, Roswell: The Ultimate Cold Case, closed, where we basically present our day in court, our opening testimony, our opening statement, our evidentiary all of our eyewitnesses, all our deathbed testimonies, and then our closing remarks. We have had dozens of people tell us that, what you just said, Alan, that we thought we knew it all. We thought we had heard everything about Roswell. And here you come out as far as with the most convincing, the most revealing, as far as the most new material that we ever thought was still available. And in the last chapter, where we have nothing but eyewitness testimony, one after another, in quotations, of what, if they were still alive, what they conveyed, what they told us in their affidavits, what they told us in their depositions, what they told us in their deathbed confessions. And it just makes the most convincing case of all that how could all these people, whether military or civilian? all be describing the same exact thing? Or how could they all be lying about the same exact thing after all this time? Don, is there a way to actually get this into court? Is there a case to be brought anywhere? What, it has, what has been suggested in recent years is that with the families, and albeit statute of limitations would long have expired, but a class action suit involving the families and all the physical threats regarding the children, the grandchildren, for example. Can, we can, even the, had grand, a, can the grandchildren bring that forward if the, uh, their parents, the, the last alive during that period, have passed? The most difficult aspect would be in, in documenting the fact that they were actually threatened. It's one thing when it's handed down from family member, the family member. When we were talking earlier about uh, the sheriff, George Wilcox, Mm -hmm. and his wife, uh, Inez, lived out the last number of years with their granddaughter, Barbara Duggar. Now, Barbara's a PhD. And for Barbara to hear their grandmother, describe how the military had threatened not only to kill them, kill their children, but also kill all the grandchildren if they ever talked about this again. Now, that was coming firsthand from the sheriff's wife. But nonetheless, Barbara, who is still alive, it's something that we need to sit down with attorneys and just see if there could be 
a viable case presented. But I'm more curious as to, you know, even the president, President Trump talking about Roswell, you know, within the last month. And before that, uh, President Clinton. And before that, President Carter. How often presidents and senators, congressmen, governors, you held up the book, the Roswell Dig Diaries. Well, Governor Bill Richardson of New Mexico wrote the foreword to that book. Doctors, uh, astronaut, Apollo uh, 14 astronaut, Edgar Mitchell wrote the foreword to our book, Witness to Roswell. So we're talking about the most high ranking people in this country saying Roswell happened or that we're not being told the truth about what happened with Roswell in 1947. So we're in very good company. So beyond even the courtroom, we're still waiting as far as for official dump to open up the files, present what would be either the fifth official explanation or they would be demonstrating that the first one, when they announced back in July of 1947 that they had actually captured a flying saucer. And that would be the one that over 600 witnesses have testified to. So that's the one we're still hiding, holding out uh, a tremendous amount of hope for. Don, I can imagine a lot of military personnel, career military people, um, hearing you say that people were harassed, right? And, and, and threatened. Threatened, And, and yes. their, their, their response would be, I, th- that's not the military I know. And yet... When we compare Roswell to Project Ultra, and 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 then even the uh, the, um, the the drug testing during World War II, mm-hmm. and some of the other techniques that were utilized, I, I, I'll cite probably the, the best example, Alan, and that was immediately after Trinity. How expendable the military were. They were detonating atomic bombs and they were sending ground troops in the ground zero within minutes after the tests. They were flying aircraft directly through the mushroom clouds, not to check the effect on the pilots and the crew, but on the instruments. So they've, they have a long history of demonstrating that people, even their own, are guinea pigs are truly expendable. And as a result, I don't think it's a far stretch to ever accept or believe that they would threaten people into cooperating when to them, the greater need was the containment of something that would threaten national security, something that was classified top secret. Mm -hmm. Uh, Again, the military, that's their function. You speak on a line, One of the things that we heard from officers at Roswell over and over again, whenever they had a situation involving a breach of security, there was no trial. They just took you out in the desert and you didn't come back. Yeah. I have a question here from Spencer Lewis, and that is, what do you fellas think about Corso and Burns' Mm -hmm. book, The Day After Roswell? What's your thought, Don? I know Bill Burns very well. I would consider him a trusted colleague and friend. And I interviewed the late 
Colonel Philip Corso on two separate occasions. I found him to be very believable, very genuine, except that much of what is disclosed in the book, The Day After Roswell, we had already presented in our very first book, UFO Crash at Roswell. And that point being that the military slash government doesn't manufacture anything. Everything is assimilated out into the private sector. Every tank, every plane, every rocket, every ship is you know, manufactured by private corporation. And the same would have been the case with Roswell. It's one of the reasons that through the years, we've had first-hand witnesses beyond Roswell, beyond Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in Dayton, Ohio, We've had firsthand witnesses testing the wreckage at Battelle Institute, at Rand Corporation, at the Bureau of Standards, at General Electric, at Hughes Aircraft. In fact, if I were, when I'm asked today, Don, where do you believe the wreckage is today? I say the government doesn't have it, the military doesn't have it. It's presently all in the hands of private corporations. And they still can't figure it out. So they still is, can't find the on button. They still can't break it, so to speak. Is that what Bob Lazar was involved with? Potentially. And that's what potentially makes at least that portion of his story believable. At least, uh, at least considered as to be, you know, legitimate. But getting back to Corso... The problem with Philip Corso is that he had allied himself with one of our witnesses who we demonstrated was not legitimate, had presented us with bogus information. And if Corso was involved to the extent he was, why would you then team up with someone who was not legitimate. Well, for those listening who may not be familiar, Corso explained in his book that he disseminated um, alien tech to private industry, and then they, little by little, brought that out into uh, the mainstream uh, commercial world. Uh, go ahead, Don. Exactly. And so the, the concept is correct as to the nature and the detail of it. That's where I find much of it I wouldn't say inaccurate as much as it was uh, wrongly represented. Much of it was second and third hand. And as a result, it, it re the book reads more like a novel. And it, we, I, I'd have a very difficult time writing a book about Jesse Marcel, who definitely was involved, sure. who was you know, involved in most every aspect of the case. And I can write a full chapter about Jess, but I can't imagine writing a whole book. And yet here was an entire, and it was a lengthy book, a 500-page book about Corso. But it was a page-turner. It was a page-turner because it read as a novel. And the, so it, it, was a, it was a narrative. And that's one of the reasons, and that's why at some point I will take Bill Burns to heart when he continues to encourage us to write the narrative of Roswell. 
And it was released on the the fiftieth um, anniversary of Roswell. That's correct. And so you know it was it was good for um, you know keeping the publicity of it alive, um, bringing attention to it. Uh, yeah, I agree that there's some possible New York Times bestseller. But yeah, yeah, what was worked. what was curious to us, Alan, was that when our first book came out in 1991, you named the show. We did it. I mean, we were on every possible talk show known at the time. And yet, when Corso's book came out at the 50th anniversary, very few talked to him. And I'm talking outside the UFO community. Mm -hmm. And in fact, NBC Dateline did a, 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 a sole interview with Corso, and it was a hatchet job. They tried to uh, basically discredit him. So there was a, a breakdown. There was an inconsistency. Here you had potentially a first-hand witness to Roswell, a high-ranking officer who was involved in the attempts at reverse engineering the actual hardware, mm -hmm. and nobody was paying attention to it outside the novice, the layperson, the general public. The media, it was as though the media was told to stay away from it. And they did. From the in beginning. Regions, they, yeah. they did. Um, so where are you with the alien bodies? Um, what? How many do we think were actually um, recovered? You said one alive. Um, and what else is there to substantiate that uh, extraterrestrial mm -hmm. uh, bodies were found? Right, right. There were two separate body sites. There was a secondary site about two and a half miles from the debris field where two bodies were recovered atop a bluff, which we have been taken to by independent first-hand witnesses. And then the main impact site, which is just 35 miles north of Roswell, is where the remains of the craft, uh, about the size of a Volkswagen Beetle, egg-shaped, a pod, more like a capsule, and that's where two additional bodies plus the survivor were recovered. So five crewmen, four deceased, one surviving, and we have both military and civilian to the survivor. Now, the late Colonel Mary Magruder, was part of the War College class of 47-48. And they were stationed, they were assigned to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in April of 1948. We have those documents. Right. What the documents do not divulge is the assignment, why they were there. Well, his assignment, as described in deathbed testimony to his five sons, independent of one another, was that they were taken into a room at Wright Path and they were shown the wreckage from Roswell. They were able to, they were uh, allowed to handle it. The memory material, he described the memory material to his sons. And then Colonel Magruder described they were taken into another room and there the survivor was within a glass, uh, glass room. They were told it was from Roswell from the year before, and that they were still testing it, that they were still 
as far as doing all types of biological research on the survivor. So that's in April of 48. So when you go to the crash site and you do an archaeological dig, um, you're looking for artifacts. Um, is there any hope that there could be any biological or um, like remains? Let's just say that we we don't expect to find any. The area is certainly um, very pre- there's, a, there's a prevalence of coyote and uh, certain other animals that, um, in fact, even the secondary body site at the debris field, uh, from the debris field, mm-hmm. it's been suggested that because those bodies were out there for a number of days, mm-hmm. they have been exposed to the high desert heat as well as to predators. Well, that would be presuming that the predators, I mean, you know, like extraterrestrial bi- biology, whatever whatever that and might maybe be. that's why... They were still there because uh, they, they quickly, you know, uh, retreated from those bodies. So, but no, we would clearly be open to uh, as far as uh, such biological remains. But uh, we're still you know, more keen on the hardware, the more the, the physical as far as remains of the the craft itself. Don, thank you so much for joining us tonight. I really do appreciate it. It was my pleasure, Alan. I hope to do it again. And and, and thank you for your interest and, and time as well. Thank you, Alan. Absolutely. And if, do you have any advice for younger and upcoming ufologists? Well, I, I, I'm one of the old hard, uh, hardware, nuts and bolts investigators. I want to be able to hold it in my hands. And as a result, uh, so many of my colleagues who have preconceived theories they set out the pre uh, to then prove, you know, those theories. And there's nothing scientific about that. Mm-hmm. Go where the evidence takes you. Go out and get your hands dirty. Be part of an archaeological dig. Talk to witnesses. And there's no such thing as a case being too old. You can always go back and reinvestigate, and you'll come up with new information. So uh, uh, join join as far as the rest of us and actually going out make, trying to make a difference. Is it almost a spiritual search for you, Don? Uh, no, no, I, I, because I, I, would, I would consider myself very spiritual. I'm very religious. So, and I make a distinction between the two. It's not where I've substituted one for the other. But I look at it this way too, Alan. If we're wrong about Roswell, if we're wrong about UFOs in general, mm-hmm. it, doesn't, you know, it doesn't change anything. But if the skeptics are wrong, if the scoffers, the bunkers are wrong, it changes everything. Right. And I want to be in that race. And then when we finally are at that, that, that finish line, I want to be there. When there is final disclosure or we finally prove it, I want to be, you know, at the finish line. All right. Well, cheers to the finish line. Don, have a good night. Thank you so much. Thank you again, Alan, for having me. Thank you. And thank you, everyone, for tuning in tonight. Um, you are most appreciated. And as a f- friendly reminder, you can sign up for the telepath. Just go to KGR Radio uh, website. And uh, every week, every so often, you get an email with some of the most trending and hot topics in the paranormal and uh, ufological community. And as always, I have to thank our producer, Bill Skywatcher. Um, thank you for your constant support week after week, especially as we go through some technical tweaks along the way. And uh, a special shout out 
to uh, Carol Carl, who has been back on the mend. Uh, your, uh, your, your visual presence is much um, uh, loved, as is your amazing voice, Carol. So thank you as well for your constant uh, support. Check out her program, Obsi- Behind the Obsidian Curtain, on KGRA Radio. And uh, until next time, everyone, live in the mystery. Be well.